Welcome to Everything Cookbooks, the podcast for curious writers, readers, and cooks. This is Kristen Donnelly, and joining me in this episode is Andrea Nguyen. Today we have a special guest. Tenoria Askew is the owner of Tenoria's Table in Indianapolis and author of Staples Plus Five. She is the co-host of the podcast, Black Girls Eating. Hey, Andrea. Hey, Kristen. How are you doing? Doing well. I'm really excited for this episode because I've known Tenoria since about 2017. Like me, she has very multifaceted business going on, which I know she'll tell us a lot about. And she's not somebody who first identifies as a writer, definitely more as a cook. And she's done one book and aspires to do more. And I just thought that would be really interesting for our listeners. I only know Tenoria through her cookbook, Staples Plus Five, and the recipes look really delicious and simple. But what also caught my eye was the dedication in, in the book. And I, I'm a dedication reader. Tenoria dedicates the book to all the brilliant, dynamic, incomparable Black women who make something out of nothing. And that intrigued me so much. And you've known her for a while, right? I have known her for a while, and I met Tenoria through the internet. It's fun how I feel like people we know on Instagram, we can call them friends. She wrote this essay, I think in 2020, on her website. It's still up. It's called I Used to Be a Peacemaker. It's really beautiful. We will link to it in the show notes. But it was one of those things where I was like, wow, like she has something to say, and I think she has a book in her. So I was just thrilled a year later that her book came out. What's interesting to me is her identity as a black woman, a proud black woman is very clear in this book, but it's not necessarily the central focus. And I'm curious to hear about why she went in that direction. Yeah, yeah. I I took a read of that very, very beautiful essay. And I think that this notion of heritage and identity and peacemaking through in her book in a very strong manner. So let's hear what Tenoria has to say. Sounds good. Tenoria, thank you so much for being here with us on Everything Cookbooks. Thank you for having me. This is so cool that like I wrote a book and someone wants me to talk about it, like the technical side of things. No pressure. (laughs) (laughs) We're excited because we hear from so many authors who say like, you know, it is a lonely process and they they almost feel validated or or, you know, or they learn something new from hearing other people's experiences. So, yeah, we're really excited to hear from you. But first, can you take us back to how you got into food? Um, and what that journey has looked like for you. I have been cooking since I was a little girl. Um, Food has always been at the center of my family gatherings and like this sense of community, cooking alongside my mom, my grandma, my aunties. And when we moved from Chattanooga, Tennessee to Kokomo, Indiana, and then later to Indianapolis, my parents were always the people that hosted others and did a lot of the cooking. And I was like, oh, this is how you make friends. Okay. And so I've just always had this heart for hospitality and for hosting. And it wasn't until I got my first apartment, I decided to get my own place 
like not living with my parents or in college later in life because I liked nice things. And I was like, I'm going to take advantage <laughs> of not paying rent for a while. Um, and so it wasn't until I got my first apartment that I invited people over and I was cooking and everyone's like, you should cook for a career. And I was like, that's not a real job. But it really was kind of my way to decompress and find something I loved outside of work. And I just realized that being in the kitchen is the one opportunity that I don't ever feel like I'm failing. I always find a way to recover. Even if I'm burning something or I've seasoned something wrong, it always feels like a learning opportunity. It never feels like a failure. And in so many other capacities of life, we feel like we failed. But for mm-hmm. something about being in the kitchen, for me, it doesn't feel like failure. And so I realized, I was like, I should probably make this a job. I started Tenorius Table and my little one-page Word document of a business plan was that I was going to do in-home cooking parties. And now I think about that and I'm like, what exactly does that mean? But I started that. It was kind of my side hustle. I planned on in three to five years, I'll quit my full-time job within nine months of starting Tenoria's Table, I auditioned for MasterChef hosted by Gordon Ramsay and I made it to that show. And it was about 12 months after Tenoria's Table that I was actually on the show taping it and you're in it to win it. Like you don't have a lot of external factors distracting you when you're filming a TV show. And so I had so many aha moments where I was like, wow, I would normally be sitting behind a desk right now, but I'm in the test kitchen cutting a bell pepper or, oh my gosh, Wolfgang Puck said, that's very flavorful. I'm like, really? (laughs) (laughs) So it was in that moment that I was like, okay, like this is validating for me. And so after being gone for two and a half months filming that show, And being crowned fourth best cook in America, I came back and two months later, I quit my full-time corporate job of 15 years. I was still relying on that one-page business plan document and really had no idea what I was doing. That was in 2016. And it really wasn't until about 2019 that I truly understood what I was doing with my business and actually believing that it was a real career for me. So so when you were in corporate for 15 years, what did you do, Tenorio? I um, worked at a credit union and I did lots of different things. So um, half of that time I was on the sales side, loans, checking accounts. I was an assistant manager. So I managed everyone on the teller line, cash in, cash out, all of that. And then I went over to human resources, training and development. And I really thought that I would have a career there. Um, The diversity, equity and inclusion component of my job I fought to get one little bullet point in my job description to say that that's what I did, even though I really wanted that to be my only focus. And it was a really eye-opening moment when I got back from filming MasterChef and was told that we were restructuring and that DEI was leaving my job role. And I was like, okay, it's really time to go. So the the diversity, equity, inclusion is what got me out of bed every day. It's what made me want to go to work. And I'm, I'm grateful for that expertise because I have created a consulting business, Tenorius Stable Consulting, that allows me to do that. So 
I am a personal chef. I bring the restaurant to people's homes now. My primary goal is to empower people through food, not so much hold people's hands through food, but to give them the confidence to get in the kitchen. So I get to do that. But I also get to consult with small businesses and nonprofits about how to make their employees and their stakeholders or customers feel value seen, known and heard. And what's really cool is that I have found a way to bridge those two because food is absolutely community. It's one thing we all have in common. We all have to eat, right? We just Mm -hmm. eat different things. Right. Well, I mean, I, I feel like having worked in diversity, equity and inclusion, early on before it really became an acronym that people understood Uh gave you a leg up. And what I was so interested in what you just mentioned to is this failure. Yeah. So many people come to food thinking they will fail. Yeah. They have fear, performance, anxiety. Mm-hmm. What, what was like, was it like the cooking with your, with all the women surrounding you and all of those opportunities when you were growing up that, you know, gave you that confidence so that failure was not an option. You are in it to win it. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that, yeah. I've never heard that before. So tell me a little <laughs> bit, tell tell Kristen me a little bit more about that not fearing failing. I think part of it is knowing what I was willing to do from the very beginning. Oftentimes when you get involved in food, the automatic thought is you're going to own a restaurant or be a caterer. That has never been my lane. And I have had to navigate my boundaries around that and being confident in saying no to those kinds of requests. But now I confidently say, I am not a caterer. I do not want a restaurant. Will I consult for a restaurant, menu plan for a restaurant? Absolutely. But I feel like especially this day and age with so many internet chefs, (laughs) I feel like I am embracing and trying to bring awareness to all of the facets of being in the food industry, writing cookbooks, being a content creator, writing recipes, doing corporate cooking demos for team engagement and things like that. I've been able to stay in my lane And I think that has what has made me fearless because oftentimes, even when you say, oh, I want to start a restaurant, people say, oh, you know, they can't last more than two years. They're going to fail. You're going to hemorrhage money. It's never been a desire of mine. And the cooking itself, it sounds like maybe taught you to like you can recover. You said if I you burn something, yeah. you know it's learning. Yeah. That is really cool. You're in Indianapolis, right? Mm-hmm. And Andrea and I were talking about how, you know, so much food media is very focused on the coasts. Yes. But you get to be a powerhouse in this city, in this other city that maybe sometimes coastal media outlets overlook. How is that? Mm-hmm. You are absolutely right in that um, Indianapolis is a little big town um, in the Midwest. And my cooking roots are very Southern, being that I learned how to cook from people who were born and raised in Tennessee and Alabama. And so even in that case, Tennessee is not coastal either. And so it's funny because I used to have a love-hate relationship with Indianapolis, thinking this is not the place for me. I need to be near seafood because that's one (laughs) of my favorite foods and fresh produce and fruits and things like that. But Indiana loves me, 
Um, and so I've I've been able to embrace the parts of indie that embrace me. With that being said, I feel like I do have a very unique perspective in how I approach food. Indianapolis is one of the largest food deserts in the nation. And a lot of people don't realize that. And so being able to empower people to cook with the items that we have access with here and make them delicious and flavorful and stir the pot a little bit in the sense that you're not just cooking meat and potatoes all the time and how to take advantage of the produce that's accessible here because everyone knows Indiana is all about corn. I just feel like by not shying away from that and actually embracing that is what makes me stand out. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I also make it a point to kind of educate myself on the different cuisines that are not easily accessible here in the city. Part of that is just through travel. Part of that is, you know, following and gleaning from other people that are from the coast. A lot of the people that, you know, I consider my internet friends, my social media friends, they don't live here. And I think that is an advantage for learning from other people. I just think cooking is just, it's an ongoing learning journey. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. it really is. So you said that Indiana, you call it indie, right? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. if I, if I say indie, I'll sort of like get some points. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Okay. So food desert, define that a little bit more for us because there are equity issues related to the term food desert. Mm -hmm. Um, And you may be speaking to that, but perhaps you're speaking to the diversity of ingredients too, because our listeners and also I've never been to Indianapolis. So Mm -hmm. tell me like when you go to the grocery store, what are the differences? There are differences in access to produce. Primarily, you're going to find in most indie grocery stores, your standard potatoes, onions, tomatoes, bananas, apples. But just going to the grocery store, and I live here in the suburbs, just going to the grocery store that's closest to me, I remember the first time I went there after moving here, they didn't have Kerrygold butter. And I was like, really, people get it together. (laughs) Or when I need microgreens for a dinner party, I have to go to a more affluent area to get microgreens. And it's like, why? And, And I'm passing five, maybe four grocery stores to get to that more affluent area. There is a a main road that runs through the bulk of the city of Indianapolis and the Marion County. And on that particular street, I mean, it runs almost through the entire city. There's only six grocery stores on that whole street. Oh man. And so when you think about the people that live on that that particular street or in in those areas that that street runs through, liquor stores and gas stations and the dollar store or convenience stores are the primary places that they're having access to food. And most often those places don't carry quality fresh ingredients. And most often those are underrepresented areas. And so... I firmly believe that it is our birthright, no matter our color, our race, our gender, whatever the case may be, it is our birthright to eat and to eat quality food. It is my right that 
if I want to eat scallops one day and I want to eat spaghetti the next day, I can do that. That's why my cookbook, Staples Plus Five, you will see that there's a scallop recipe in there. And then there's also a scratch made spaghetti recipe because I want everyone to say, I can make that. I can do that. I can go to the grocery store and have a clear understanding of what I'm looking for. It's just unfortunate that people could go to the grocery store and not have access to fresh scallops or not have access to quality, organic, pasture-raised ground beef. So that's that's what I mean by food desert is just that specifically here in Indianapolis, the largest population of people in the urban areas and even close to the suburbs, they don't have access. Right. Yeah. Even rural communities. Indiana's a farm town. Mm -hmm. Um, And unless you are friends with your neighbor farmer, if you live in a rural area, you don't have access as well. Yeah, I've been through parts of of Alabama, you know, and even the differences between Publix outlets and Piggly Wigglies. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's very, you know, what what is carried in their inventory. I think I went to a a Piggly Wiggly um, in Montgomery. Mm -hmm. Um, when I was there visiting the Equal Justice Initiative. Uh And I went in and I just wanted to look at the hot sauces. And my husband and I uh, were in there. He's white and he's like, where's the Sriracha? And someone came (laughs) along, there was this black guy and he said, what are you guys looking for? And we said, Sriracha. And he's like, what? Sriracha. And he said, we don't have that here. Mm. And I was like, that's fascinating. I was like, you don't need Sriracha because, you know, I was like, you have all these other hot sauces and it's fine. Right. But I think that we assume so much in food about our pantries. Yes. And I think that this is a perfect segue yeah. into your book. Yeah. It's such a smart book. Tell us about the concept of your book and how you came to it. So Staples Plus Five, 100 Simple Recipes to Make the Most of Your Pantry, comes from one, how I learned to cook as a little girl as well as my time on MasterChef. So as a little girl, everything in my house was cooked from scratch. There was no Kraft mac and cheese, stovetop stuffing. That was a very rare. And typically, even when my mom tried to introduce those things into our dinner table, my dad was like, never again. (laughs) So we did not have those things a lot. Watching my grandmother cook things from scratch, my mom cook things from scratch. That's just how I learned to cook. And my mom would always say that her mom taught her, she would say, baby, if all you have is a bag of rice and a bag of flour, you can make a meal. Like if times get tough and money is tight, bag of rice, bag of flour, maybe some potatoes, you could make a meal. And so I guess I've always carried that with me, even though I've never needed it. I've always carried that with me. And it really shined for me on my time at MasterChef because we always had a staple pantry at our uh, cook station. So during every competition, we always knew that we would have access to flour, butter, oils, vinegars, very limited seasoning, some herbs. And there was even a competition we had, a challenge where they gave us one additional ingredient. I had peaches, but um, we had to make a, a dish with just those staple ingredients and these peaches and other people had other ingredients. And I was like, this is no sweat. It wasn't challenging for me. And so what I realized is that 
those staple ingredients are the fundamental parts of cooking. As long as you have those staple ingredients as well as some, some staple equipment too, you can make a meal. And if you take it one step further and just add one or two ingredients, things that you're not necessarily going to break the bank or things that are going to be challenging to find in you know, a grocery store in a rural community or an urban community, but things that you know, you can find and use again and again and again, then you can make nutritious meals that everyone can enjoy. And so that's kind of where Staples Plus Five came from, is thinking about how I was raised cooking, my time on MasterChef, and also making a cookbook that felt accessible for anyone. Well, I made your Southern fried corn. Oh, you did. Yeah. (laughs) That's one of my favorites. That recipe is one of my favorites because my grandmother, my dad's mom, taught my mom after they got married how to make that. And then my mom, of course, passed that down to me. And so it is a holiday staple especially at Thanksgiving and Christmas. It's always at our dinner table. It is actually, I made a Mexican variation because we had a Mexican mystery box on MasterChef. And so I made a Mexican variation of that for a mystery box challenge and won that mystery box challenge with that recipe. Yeah, that's cool. And so that that corn is just very near and dear to me. So what you put in it to, to make it Mexican? We had some poblano peppers. And so I roasted those over the cooktop and then chopped those up in there, added a little bit of cumin, and then I served it with some cilantro, lime, spot prawns. I love poblanos with corn. I added jalapeno because yes. yeah, I live in California and I had the jalapeno. It's a staple of mine. Yes. And you said you can add, you know, red or green bell pepper. And I was mm-hmm. like, I want the heat. Yes. And it was, it's such a simple recipe. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned in the head note, and you know, head notes are so short that this is where you got a master top chef to show yourself on the plate. Yes. Yeah. It was paying homage to my mom and my grandmother who taught me how to make that recipe. Um, and it was very early on in the competition. This was in the top three, five competition. So we were really trying to make a name for ourselves at that point. And the box was curated by the previous winner, Claudia Sandoval, who won season six. She came back and that was the box that she curated. And she said, I want to see yourself on the plate. And I was like, oh, well, who I am is, you know, the people who are basically the reason why I love cooking and food as much as I do. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was super rewarding. Yeah, no, it was just, you know, I, I made it. I, it was so easy. I set it on the table and my husband and I dove in. And he said, this is so delicious. <laughs> and the thing is, like, it's called Southern Fried Corn. But you say it's more like cream corn, but it's like mm-hmm. this, just this beautiful, beautiful dish. Now, I want to ask you something. And I know that, you know, as an author, we don't get to choose on the facing page sometimes. Mm-hmm. So on the facing page, you have a recipe for, it's like a brown butter couscous. Yes. Tell us like those two things. On the left side, I see Southern fried corn. On the right mm-hmm. side, the brown butter couscous. So how does that tell us what Tenoria does in terms of who you are, not just on the plate, but in your career? That I'm going to put butter in everything. That's what it should tell you. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I just cook what I like to eat. 
all of the recipes in Staples Plus Five are things that I just really love to eat or things that I know that I've made for people. And I always feel like the most rewarding feedback from someone after you cook for them is that they go back for seconds or they say yum, or they just take this long sigh after they've filled up their (laughs) bellies. I'm like, okay, my job is done. This couscous salad, my mom has always made like a traditional summery pasta salad. I just, I love the flavors of fall and I wanted to think of something that had the same concept of my mom's summer pasta salad, but was really paying attention to fall and using ingredients that people take for granted. Couscous is pasta. People don't realize that. And it's really easy to cook and it's fairly inexpensive. And so, you know, cooking it in chicken stock to build flavor and adding fall vegetables that have been roasted. And then why not to put brown butter on a salad? Why not? Why not? That's that's where that came from. And so, yeah, I feel like the corn is telling you this is where I came from. And the couscous is saying, this is where I'm going. This is, you know, how I've progressed. Now let's see what's next. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like a lot of the recipes have that, like some are like down home or very family inspired and some are, you know, I was wondering like, have are there things you have made for clients or? Yes. Because there's definitely these like more elevated while still simple recipes, which is really nice. Absolutely. There are quite a few. Actually, the couscous salad is one that I've made when I do slightly larger events. And when I say larger events, I mean like 25 people compared to just who ever can fit at your dining room table. I mean, it was just one that turned out really great. And I even made it for a news segment. And I was like, okay, I'm putting this in my back pocket. I'm putting this in my arsenal. But a lot of the recipes in Staples Plus Five are ones that I have made for clients or family members or friends. And what I always think about when I'm doing a dinner party is number one, people trust me to feed their loved ones. And most oftentimes they have never had my food before. And that just blows my mind that people trust me to do that. But also I am there to take out the complexity of cooking for them. That doesn't mean I need to make it overly complex for myself. Mm -hmm. And I think when you say cooking from scratch, that scares people and they think automatically complex. And I'm like, it's not, it's not at all. That's why I feel like not only does Staples Plus Five shine a light on staple ingredients, whether it's a down-home comfort food recipe or it's something more elevated, either way it goes, people are going to get the basic fundamental techniques. And I feel like my training background from being a corporate trainer definitely trickled into Staples Plus Five. The feedback that I've gotten is you make me feel like I can cook anything. And I was like, that's the goal. That's awesome. I want you to feel like you can cook anything. That sweet potato pie bar recipe mm. is kind of amazing looking, to tell you the truth. Because it's, and I know that you referenced your grandma Lily a lot mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in the book. Yeah. She seemed to have been quite an inspiration from the get go. She is the main person that I have the majority of my cooking as a little girl memories. 
when we moved to Indianapolis, well, to Indiana when I was three years old. And so we traveled to Chattanooga a lot to spend time with family. My brother and I would go there for the summers um, and spend time with our grandparents. And we always stayed with my grandma, Lily. She spent so much time in the kitchen, but she did it with passion and appreciation for what she was doing. It never seemed like it was a job to her. And just her sweet potato pie, like there's no one else makes sweet potato pie like her. And honestly, even now when I make the sweet potato pie bars, when I make a sweet potato pie for the holidays, she is in the kitchen with me. She's no longer with us, but she is right there telling me, nope, that's not enough butter. Nope, you need a little bit more. I just, I, I, she's right there. Um, but my fondest memory of her, it's actually not a recipe in the book. Well, it kind of is, but as a little girl, uh, we would go there for the summer. And one summer, I remember she made blueberry pancakes. Now, I think the blueberry pancakes she was making was probably from a mix. I, I honestly think they were. But this one time she made them and she, my mom, she would cut them up and then pour the syrup on them. My grandmother poured the syrup on them and then cut them up. And I thought it was, I thought my life was over. I sat at the breakfast table and cried. Like, I can't eat these. What is happening to me? I want my mom. My grandma Lily was not having it. She was like, you're going to sit here until you finish these pancakes. Y'all, those were the best pancakes I ever had in my life. (laughs) To this day, I still can remember what they taste like. It was a really sweet, full circle moment that before she passed away as an adult, I got to go back and make her blueberry pancakes. So do you serve them to her the way she served them to you? Of course. (laughs) And she ate them up. So yeah, I, I think about her all the time when I'm cooking. I constantly wonder if she's proud of me. I'm constantly thinking about the conversations that she and I had as an adult when I was really figuring out who I was with food and talking about gardening and me growing fresh herbs and her saying, oh, baby, I don't use those. But also she loved to garden. I'm like, what is happening, Grandma? (laughs) Just, yeah. My mother's the same way. Yeah. 88. (laughs) Wow. My mom uses fresh herbs, but she like wasn't gardening for like such a long time until after my dad passed and now she gardens and then she says okay. I don't have anyone here to eat all the fresh herbs with. Uh-huh. Oh. <laughs> you know what? It's funny. I garden. I find it more of a like a therapeutic thing than it being practical because yes. you're like these little eggplants cost me you know, who knows how much in water, a plant, soil, fertilizer. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, Tenoria, let me ask you something. You know, there's a lot of great books and also terrific deep conversations these days about black food. Mm -hmm. How do you perceive your work fitting into that conversation? I think the most important thing or the thing that I, you hear me talk about a lot is just appropriation in food. People don't realize and recognize that my ancestors, enslaved people, are the root of American cuisine. They came from Africa, the Caribbean, and they were the ones in the kitchen feeding the people that brought them over here and really setting setting the precedent for what is good cuisine in America. 
And a lot of those have influences from, well, all of them have influences from the food that they were cooking before they were stolen. And so I think even outside of enslaved people, I just think about the food that's considered new discoveries now. And I'm thinking to myself, just because you spent a month in India... (laughs) doesn't mean you're the expert of Indian cuisine and you've brought it back and now you're opening an Indian restaurant and you're basically profiting off of someone else's culture. And so I find myself speaking out about that a lot and helping it. I guess you can say helping. I don't really know. Sometimes don't care if it's helping, but I'll use that for lack of better words, helping people recognize where food really came from and who is the contributor to the food that you are enjoying today. Also thinking about dismantling the negative thoughts around Black food. Um, There's someone on Instagram, I think she's called Black Nutritionist. I absolutely love everything she posts about it is okay. Go ahead and eat your, your jollof rice and your plantains. You don't need to turn cauliflower into everything because of the (laughs) cauliflower is meant to be cauliflower. There's a fantastic roasted cauliflower recipe in my book. Yes. Cauliflower is not rice. Cauliflower is not buffalo wings. Cauliflower is not pizza. Um, (laughs) Thinking about how Food that's well-seasoned is all of a sudden bad. It's funny. (laughs) Funny story. I was actually in um, northern Minnesota helping my best friend move over 4th of July weekend. And it's my first time ever being in Minnesota. I was taken back with how consistently bland the food was and how the concept of even ketchup was spicy. And I'm like, wait a minute here. (laughs) Wait a minute. And it's it's like, okay, well, that's very Norwegian, Scandinavian style food. And the immediate notion that because you're using seasoning, that it's spicy. And then the next thought is that it's bad. It's also why people sit at my dinner parties and go, oh my gosh, this is the best I've ever had. I'm like, no, it's not. It's just seasoned. It's just seasoned. (laughs) That is Black food. Um, That is Black culture. And I am going to do whatever I can to celebrate and elevate Black culture. And fortunately, my vessel or my way of doing that primarily is through food. Yeah, Black nutritionist. There's another one, I think, who goes by Latina dietitian. And something important that they're doing is shifting the idea of what can be healthy and how these traditional foods or cultural foods for people aren't necessarily unhealthy, even though the maybe white nutrition establishment is calling them that. Mm -hmm. Oh, you guys, look, you know, that whole Mediterranean diet. Right. I'm sorry. I am so sorry. I mean, I... There are other cuisines out there that are very healthy. Mm-hmm. I think that what Tenoria is speaking to, what the Latina nutritionists and Black nutritionists are speaking to, for me as a writer, it's like, let's just look at our own food roots. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And what we ate not that far back, just a couple of generations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, even with rotary dial telephones, you know, yeah. and pre-internet days. Yes. Yeah. Yep. And people moved around more. They ate more vegetables. Mm-hmm. Food was more expensive because you really, you know, prided yourself in getting good quality food like Tenora is talking about. Yeah. So th- when we, it's so easy to run towards the Mediterranean diet. But gosh darn it, you know, olive oil just doesn't work for Vietnamese food. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> You're absolutely right. It's 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 funny. The first time I really got a clear understanding of a paleo diet, my my friend, she had adapted the 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 paleo lifestyle and I thought, "Well, why is that better for people's bodies when Asian people eat rice and they're fine?" They're one of the most petite um, communities of people. You're telling me that rice is wrong? Rice is bad? She had no answer for me. And I'm like, absolutely you don't have an answer for me. Because what's so wild is that it's American culture that has taken on saying that all of these cultural foods are bad, but America has created the most processed food out there. I'm like, wait a minute. It's a matter of white supremacy. It really is. By saying that cultural foods are bad, it's a it's a part of society that you can't get yourself. You can't figure out yourself. I compare it to black women's hair. There is no other culture that can do what black women can do with their hair. And because they can't do it, they're going to say that it's bad, that it's wrong, that it's ugly, that it's unkept. And so it's the same with cultural foods. You can't cook them yourself. You can't figure it out. And so therefore you're going to say that it's bad. You know, the same people that are saying that food is bad are the same people that you're seeing asking for breakfast burritos. We have all the knowledge within ourselves to feed ourselves well. It's just that we forget about it and we, we mm -hmm. run towards the, the easiest things possible. Um, I see those gigantic collard greens in the South, you know, the size of toddlers. Yes. And that's, you know, that's a lot of green fiber that you're going to yes. eat. <laughs> so, yes. And nutrients. Absolutely. We should talk a little bit about the writing process for you. So how was it? It was interesting to say that I learned a lot. First of all, Kristen, I have to give you all of the kudos because I don't know <laughs> that writing a book would have happened as quickly or as, the way it did if it weren't for you, because you are were the first person to validate that I deserved to write a cookbook just by oh. saying in my Instagram DMs, I see a book in you. I'll never forget yeah. that. And then taking me down the path of finding an agent. I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. By having an agent, I think that that truly helped me recognize that this was my book. It was not the publisher's book. And so I think by going into it with that frame of mind was very helpful. It's funny you talk about all of the content that's written before you get to the recipe that was cut down so much. Oh, it was, it was. so frustrating. Oh my gosh. But the the book writing process, I really enjoyed just drumming up all the nostalgia about all of these recipes. I was very mindful in that I wanted my recipe tester to be a, a black woman or a black person because they understood a lot of why I was creating the recipes the way I did. And so I was able to get a castmate from my season of MasterChef, who's a Black woman, to be my recipe tester. And that was just amazing. My food photographer was a Black woman because I knew that she could capture the food the way I thought it was supposed to look or based on, you know, shared experiences with food. But I appreciate that my publisher did not try to strip away my Blackness in mm -hmm. writing my book. But the main thing that I learned, if I ever get the opportunity to write a second book, is I want more time. I got mm. this book writing deal, I think, August 
And it really didn't really start until September. And I turned in the first draft of my manuscript in February. Oh, my God. Wow. Wow. Oh, my gosh. That is short. Yeah. Because it's very pantry focused. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it was pandemic Mm -hmm. time. And they were probably like, let's get it out now. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So how many recipes did you have, Tenoria? A hundred recipes. But like to start out with? They gave me the option of using half of the recipes I already had existing like on my website. I thought that was not fair to my audience for spending money on a book when they could just go to the internet. And so I think I only used about 25 to 30, maybe even less than that, of what's already on my website. A lot of the recipes were things that I'd made before that were in my head, things I'd made for clients, but had never made consistently the same way every time. So it really was a matter of, let me go into the kitchen and finally document what I've been Mm -hmm. doing all along. Yeah, that's nice in a way. But you know, all those you have left over, my friend, save them for the next book. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. I have this ridiculous binder that is, you know, experience number one. And actually, my husband, he's so cute. He bought me um, another binder. It's a obnoxiously sparkly pink binder. And he found another one and said, okay, this is your sparkly pink binder for book number two. Oh, so you, you think you have book number two in you somewhere? I have the concept. I pitched mm-hmm. Great. three concepts, which this this pitch experience was different. And it's actually been your emails and listening to your podcast that has kind of helped me prepare thinking about how I would approach pitch number two, because I put three concepts on a piece of paper because the publisher approached me. And so it was not a matter of building out a pitch that you would then take to publishers. And so my agent did give me that option. We could have gone down that path, but the way the publisher presented a lot of the options that I probably wouldn't get from other publishers, it made sense to go the direction that I did. And so I have two other concepts that I didn't use. And one of them it will happen in my lifetime because it's basically like a love letter to my grandmother. It's a cookbook, but it's a love letter to my grandmother. So that is like my ultimate cookbook goal. But still, I've I've come up with at least three others just after writing the book. So I've got ideas brewing for sure. Great. Who is your agent and who was your photographer? Um, my agent is Lee Eisman. <laughs> She's fantastic. I appreciate the expertise that she brings because Prior to getting into um, being a literary agent, she was an attorney. And so I felt like if there was anybody that was going to go to bat for me and fight for me, it was her. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'm excited to work with her in the future. And then my food photographer is actually, she was a friend of mine before this, and she has just a really great blossoming career, partially now after the book, but just I know that's the direction she's always wanted to go. And I think this opportunity may have given her the confidence to do that. Uh, But her name is Martina Jackson. She's here local to Indianapolis. And she has since worked with several brands and done a lot of food photography. We have worked on additional projects even after the cookbook. So I'm just really excited to see her grow and develop and have her in my back pocket. It was really important for me. I'm really proud that the Staples Plus Five team, editor, chef on site, 
recipe tester, food stylist, everyone was either a woman of color or a woman. We had one guy, our creative director, Bill. He was great. I loved him. But I was really, really proud of that. It sounds like this book has enabled you to seed so many different possibilities and pathways for your future. In addition to growing this community of women, community of color around your business Mm -hmm. in Indianapolis and elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that I got to admit to you, I never thought of when I wrote my first book because I was just like, I'm just happy someone let me write a book. Uh I'm so grateful. (laughs) Oh, my God. I mean, but I think that, Tenori, coming from the background that you did as a corporate trainer, being, frankly, a competitor on television, you were thinking strategically and you had a long-term view of how all of this sort of fits together, right? Yeah. Because we never know what's going to really happen. (laughs) That that all of these things are working. And and I think that that level of foresight is something that we can all learn from your experience. Thank you. That actually means a lot because I I have to remind myself often that everything is not just business. As a little girl, I was the one who wanted to play office, like have my Barbies like they were going to work every day. And I've definitely, I feel like I've stripped myself of the trauma from corporate culture, um, being an entrepreneur now, but I definitely can appreciate what I gleaned from being in a corporate setting for as long as I have. And it's the strategy and the mindfulness of logistics and connecting dots and, and things like that. And so while I constantly say I'm an entrepreneur who really has no idea what they're doing, I am still chasing my dreams. A cookbook was a dream. I'd say writing a cookbook was a dream, but now that has turned into, I want a library of cookbooks someday. I always say that my retirement goal is to have an inn like Lorelai from Gilmore Girls. (laughs) (laughs) I want to have an inn, but I want to be like Lorelai and Suki. And um, in my inn, I want there to be a library of my cookbooks. You know, the Staples Plus Five is just one step towards that ultimate retirement goal of mine. Dreamy. (laughs) What advice would you give to people who are aspiring to write a book? I would say um, just write everything down. Everything that comes to mind, write it down because you may end up using it somewhere. If it's just a recipe idea or a thought about a particular recipe, or even if you're watching something on TV and you're like, huh, I might be able to use that, write it down. For someone who's actually headed down that journey, I would say build in rest. Mm. A lot of people... um, when there's projects and deadlines, it's like, let's go hard. Let's hit it. Let's that, that grind mentality, but actually taking a step back and resting and doing something mindless, uh, binging on a Netflix show, going for a walk, getting out in your garden, that's going to give you more fire and, and rejuvenate you and put you in the position to be even more creative or more insightful about your book. So don't take rest and walking away from your writing for granted. Yeah, that's something I'm like only just learning in the past couple, maybe a year. I'm still learning, you guys. So I'm, I, <laughs> I need like if I if I weren't like 
So scared of pain, I should have it tattooed somewhere private, undisclosed location. <laughs> like my new goal is seasons of hustle, seasons of rest. Yeah, I got my cookbook deal in 2020. And even though my manuscript was due in February, I closed my laptop. I stopped what I was doing two weeks for two weeks during the holidays in December. And it prepared me to take on the rest of my book. I had written and we had started testing about half. No, probably about three quarters of the book prior to me taking this break. But taking that break and not writing and my recipe tester was still testing during this whole time, but not looking over her feedback and getting myself all wound up about it, not doing any of that for two weeks prepared me to say, okay, I can hit it hard for this next round. Wise. I want to just take a break now. (laughs) (laughs) Because Tenori's giving me permission. Do it. (laughs) Go dress. Take a nap. (laughs) Thank you so much, Tenoria. Thank you for having me. This is so cool. Thank you for listening to Everything Cookbooks. Find us on Instagram at everythingcookbooks and join the email list on our website, everythingcookbooks.com. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. This helps more people find the show. Sincere thanks to our editor, Abby Circatella. Thanks so much for listening. We'll catch you next time. For now, keep on cooking, writing, and reading.